Hello, friends. You're back again, and we're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining me for this Vetfolio Voice episode, sponsored in part by KVP Orthotics and VetraScience. For this episode, I'm joined by doctors Elizabeth DeLumba and Andrea Looney to discuss ortho at home, or the non-surgical considerations such as bracing and nutraceuticals to keep in mind when managing joint disease. I love these types of discussions because as many of us have experienced, surgery is not always an option in our patients. Ideally, it would be as simple as diagnosing a condition and scheduling surgery, but it's rarely that simple. Not every condition has a surgical correction. Sometimes there's underlying conditions that may interfere with anesthesia or with the healing process, and many times finances play a big role. I love having the knowledge to give our clients and patients options while still being able to help, even if what would normally be plan A is no longer the best option for them. As I mentioned before, for this episode, I was joined by Dr. Andrea Looney, a veterinarian who's board certified in both anesthesiology and analgesia, as well as sports medicine and rehabilitation. She's currently in private practice at Ethos Veterinary Health. Our second veterinarian is Dr. Elizabeth DeLumba. Dr. DeLumba practiced small animal general medicine before transitioning to industry and helping establish the home delivery veterinary pharmacy concept. She's currently the senior veterinary consultant at VetraScience Laboratories, focusing on the use of veterinary nutraceuticals in their support of companion animal health. We had a lot of fun chatting, so without further ado, let's jump in. So I'm here today with Dr. Elizabeth DeLumba and Andrea Looney. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast that speaks about mobility in our small animal patients. The pleasure is all mine. So let's start with just kind of a really basic question here in the beginning, and that's why is a return to mobility so important in our patients? You know, I think that's probably one of the most important questions to ask when we're dealing with orthopedic problems. Um, In the young animal, I think it's important because we have to maintain long-term mobility. They have to live a normal life. But it also, their mobility contributes to their mental mental as well as physical health. There's a psychological impact to pain and the decrease in movement. You may see reactive behaviors like snapping and growling, and that puts people at risk. So it's important for young. It's also important for our older animals. And we tend to think of orthopedic problems more with older animals than younger animals. But mobility is a big quality of life issue. When you have a 150-pound Newfoundland dog and they can't get up by themselves to go outside to relieve themselves, that's a a problem for the pet owner because they can't have that animal in their household. And and so it becomes a life and death decision when they can't get up and move around. Um, I think we all understand that pain and discomfort at any age is unacceptable, but we need to get them back to normal function as soon as possible. When they have abnormal function, they have abnormal gating that puts additional pressure on other joints, and it can result in additional joint problems other than the original presenting problem, as well as maybe muscular atrophy and weakness along the lines. Yes, I think that's true. Um, Mobility, as I often say, is health of the patient. It's such an important aspect of so many of the evidence-based and uh, literature-based quality of life scales and decisions that our owners make. 
Um, and we think about it as our animals getting around uh, and making sure that their musculoskeletal, their neuromuscular systems are functioning appropriately. But we, what we don't think about is that when an animal moves, there's so much positive input to the neuromuscular coupling, to respiratory mechanics, especially to cardiovascular function and circulation. And so when you think about what movement does to all these other body systems, you realize why it becomes such an important uh, link in the quality of life of our small animal patients. Absolutely. It's affecting everybody in this scenario. I mean, we have quality of life for the pet, quality of life for the family, and then these you know, important physiological uh, parts that depend on, on movement and mobility. So when we have these pets who are suffering from reduced mobility, you know, we think of going ahead and getting them on, on some of our quote-unquote traditional pain medications, but what options are out there for pets who are suffering from reduced mobilities, mobility aside from you know, our pharmaceutical options? That's, that's a very important thing to consider. I think that the use of pain medication in veterinary medicine has come such a long way in a relatively short period of time. Um, we have a lot of different NSAIDs that are available to us, uh, and it's probably one of the most commonly prescribed medications. But as with any prescription medication, there is the potential for side effects. And there are certainly some patients that can't handle the NSAID medications, either for short-term or for long-term usage. Um, we also recommend that they have blood work done periodically just to make sure that it's not impacting any other organ system. Um, and certain cases, it's just not even an option because of some of the side effects. And as working with supplements, clients have told us that a lot of times they prefer not to use prescription drugs if at all possible. And that support for their pet can come in a couple of different forms. It can come as oral supplementation to support and rebuild the joint tissues, um, as well as external bracing to provide them with physical support that they may need to help them regain their function. So supplements will really resonate with clients because they often use them themselves. So offering clients an alternative of a supplement or something like external bracing when appropriate is good practice and it builds trust with your clients. Absolutely. So help someone like me who, you know, as a, as a general practitioner and I'm in the room and that client says, you know, what, what do I do as far as the external bracing, the supplements, things like that? How do we as veterinarians help guide our pet owners on selecting a supplement or some of these other types of therapies? We're lucky in the supplement area because they do, there is a, a re regulating body uh, that's alternative that people can use. Um, it's called the National Animal Supplement Council. And you can see on most of the better supplements that they'll have a seal on there that says National Animal Supplement Council or NASC. Um, it was actually founded in 2001 to promote the health and well-being of non-human food chain animals in supplements. And I part of this arose because of Basically, it's sort of the wild west out there for supplements. So anybody can put something in a bottle and sell it as a supplement because it's not heavily regulated. So as veterinarians, it's really hard for us to be able to make a decision on what we can recommend to our clients because they can go anywhere since it's a non-prescription product and pick something up from any mom and pop store. But what it says on the label may not necessarily be what's actually in the bottle. So if it has something like the NASC uh, certification on it, you can be able to trust what it says on the label is actually in the product. So NASC actually accredits companies and the 
they have to be able to be accredited in order to be able to have the seal on their products. And there are basically four cornerstones for the NAS NASC quality system. You have to have a standard operating procedure for production. So your production has to be regulated and controlled. There has to be a system for adverse event reporting. So if there are problems with your product, not only do you have to capture that information, but you have to report it back to NASC. And then NASC will report it back to the FDA. You have to have quality control manuals for your processing. And um, it's important to have, there are certain label guidelines and specific warnings and things that have to go on the product labels that are consistent with the, the regulations from FDA and the Center for Veterinary Medicine. So if you, as a veterinarian, it's kind of a shortcut to be able to look at that NASC label and say, okay, someone externally has actually gone in there and certified that what it says on the label is actually what's in the packaging. Um, so, it's our choice as veterinarians to select which supplements we want to use, but it's always easier to be able to reach for something that someone else has certified because there's, as a general practitioner, there's just too much to try to keep track of and there's no way you can keep track of all the supplements that are out there. So it's a nice, quick, handy way to be able to say, okay, this is something that I can trust. So the other nice thing about supplements too is that they can be used long-term with very few issues, unlike some of the prescription medications. And a lot of times they're very easy to administer because it's a tasty chew that enhances compliance. So in the long run, it's easier for the client to be able to get these products into their pet. Absolutely. And I'll take any kind of like handy way to know that we're choosing reputable supplements for our patients what kinds of ingredients are we looking for in these supplements? Most veterinarians are familiar with the glucosamine and chondroitins, um, as well as fatty acid supplements, omega fatty acids. But there are so many other products and, and supplements that are available now that we just don't have as much experience with. And so it sort of behooves us to go ahead and, and take some time and look at some of these other ingredients. Um, I'd like to sort of focus on their two groups of supplements. One is the, the supplements that deal with pain and inflammation. And then the other one is more of rebuilding and support of the tissues. So there are uh, the first sort of ingredient group that I want to look at is um, Morris Alba, Acacia Kechu, and Scutellaria baclensis. And so these are products that are bioflavonoids that help to inhibit the production of the cyclooxygenase and lipoxygenase enzymes. And so their principal function is actually analgesic and anti-inflammatory. Um, they have been associated, they've been around for a long time. They're very safe. They're easy to use. Um, and what they do is they decrease the levels, protein levels of the pro-inflammatory cytokines, as well as some of the interleukins. And so what they're doing from a biological standpoint is they're actually getting in there and reducing the production of some of these enzymes that result from inflammation. Um, for this group of products, uh, of ingredients, we've we've done a clinical study with a, bl a blinded placebo study where there was a significant decrease in the time to traverse a maze. So they took dogs, they took beagle dogs that have um, existing orthopedic disease, they put them through a maze, they gave them these compounds, um, put them through the maze again, and they found a decrease in the amount of time it took them to get across this maze. And they also um, rated them according to the canine 
brief pain index and found a decrease in their pain scores as well. So these particular ingredients will find in Vetrosciences Amalextin and to a certain extent in Bayer's Alenza. The second group is probably one a few more people are familiar with, and that's Boswellia. Boswellia is used to decrease the inflammatory response in bones and joints, and it has strong anti-inflammatory as well as analgesic properties, and it also helps to prevent cartilage loss. So that's another ingredient that you'll come across periodically. With Boswellia, after about two weeks of treatment, there was a study where they saw the overall efficacy of the supplement was evident in about 71% of the 24 dogs that they tested it for. And it was significant. There was a significant reduction in the severity of the clinical signs. So these are things that people haven't heard of as much, but we certainly have some evidence behind them. And as we look for evidence-based medicine, Boswellia certainly has some strong information behind us. And you'll find Boswellia in products like Vetroflex, Rejuvenate, Arth Arthroflex, um, and Dasequin. Um, another product that people have heard of is turmeric. And so curcumin is the active ingredient in turmeric. And curcuvet Curcumin will actually regulate the expression of some of the inflammatory mediators as well. So it downregulates the gene that is responsible for the inflammatory mediators. And so you'll see a decrease in inflammation secondary to their use. One of the difficulties with curcumin is that it's not as bioavailable as we would like it to be. So it's pretty important that when you're considering a supplement with curcumin, that it has some way of getting into the system. Um, one of the best ways to, to cross that, in, that gut barrier is with the, uh, a, a phytosome product. The phytosome is actually takes that bio product Product, that, that bioflavonoid product and wraps it in a um, lipid layer so that it transverses the gut easier and can get to the selected tissue much better. Um, so you'll find a fair number of products that have curcumin in them, inclu including Vetroflex and Arth Arthroflex, um, Phycox and Dasequin Advanced. Um, and then when we talk about the ingredients for tissue recovery, we're going to talk about the same the scutellaria, the morris alba, and the acacia cachichu, again, and that that an anti-inflammatory blend not only decreases joint discomfort, but has been shown to be very effective at maintaining the glycosaminoglycans within the articular cartilage. So not only does it decrease pain, it also helps with tissue recovery. Um, it also helps to decrease any sort of collagen uh, breakdown. So we've seen that with that particular product as well. Another product that another ingredient that people are familiar with is hyaluronic acid. Um, we know that that's located in the cartilage of joints and tendons and ligaments, as well as synovial membrane, but there's a lot of hyaluronic acid in the extracellular space. So especially when you're talking about joint support after surgery, it's going to help to repair the tissue because it also supports the skin as well as the and skin and wound healing, as well as improving lubrication of the cartilage and its structures. And then the last product, the last ingredient I'm going to touch on is pernicanoliculus, which is the green lip muscle. This is a whole food that we have uh, seen a lot of improvement in many animals, not just dogs and cats, but also even in horses. It inhibits both COX-1 and COX-2 activity, um, as well as some of the other mediators of, of inflammation. The nice thing about this is because it is a whole food, it not only has uh, glucosamine as well as con different chondroitins, 
and omega fatty acids. So it's really a well-balanced supplement to be able to use. Um, and you'll find that in Vetroflex and Glycoflex and S3 soft chews, um, as well as Flexidin. Excellent information. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I knew about glucosamine and chondroitin, even boswellia, although I didn't know boswellia was anti-inflammatory. I knew it was analgesic, but that was news to me. So you just kind of opened up this whole big list for us. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. This is a, It's sort of a passion for me. So it's nice to be able to share. Absolutely. It comes across and we're so happy to, to listen to it. So kind of getting away from supplements a little bit, when should pet owners start to consider therapies like an external support system or, you know, probably in conjunction with one of these supplements? I think probably Dr. Looney can can answer that a little bit better. I think we always like to do some some early intervention, but as far as external support systems, I think I think that she has a, a better perspective on that. Yeah, and thank you for uh tossing that over to me because it's a big area of interest of mine. Uh, I certainly see the nutraceuticals, food and food therapy, appropriate weight, nitrogen, protein balance as being a base of the pyramid, whereby the next layer up becomes more of your conventional pharmaceuticals, as well as your support and mobility devices. And we continue on up the pyramid to more advanced and novel pain medications and interventional therapies. But we see those big building blocks at the bottom of the pyramid. So the support and mobility devices really build upon that pyramid. That's why we have such a big base. I'd rather see these devices and these uh, structures, the these aids, enter an animal's life earlier on, um, maybe before the owner does uh, a lot of the Google searching and trying on their own. A very good example of this would be uh, a belly band that is used for many of our, our patients to help the owner uh, get the animal up, not realizing that this puts some severe pressure um, on a bladder, on the lumbosacral joint and on respiratory mechanics. Whereby if you look at um, an, a, a more constructed and individualized support system such as the Balto Life, which lifts the pelvis in the appropriate way, um, has an, an ease for the owners to go ahead and carry the patient appropriately, puts very little pressure on the bladder and on the, the diaphragm. Um, this is a better device for that patient earlier on without making more problems uh, for that patient in terms of spinal and pelvic alignment. So I'd like to see these support and mobility devices get into the animal's picture earlier on, um, but realizing very much that it builds upon that pyramid that we talked about. Absolutely. And so a lot of what we're talking about with these supplements and external support system and things like that, we're talking about non-surgical therapies for these musculoskeletal issues. So under what circumstances, when would it make sense for a veterinarian and a pet owner to consider a non-surgical approach to a musculoskeletal issue? Yeah, I think that it's really important to have that open communication with the pet owners because everybody's a little bit different. Every patient is a little bit different. Sometimes these things are best for just mild disease. You know, as Dr. Looney pointed out, it's it really is a pyramid and you have to start out at a base somewhere. Are we seeing the, the top of the pyramid where there's severe disease or are we a little bit farther down? They haven't gotten too far. They're not too far 
gone. So these types of interventions are, are really good for mild disease, um, things that we're expecting to be progressive, but trying to delay that progression as much as possible. There may be times when your patient can't tolerate a procedure, and so you really need to come up with something to try to make them comfortable, something to try to preserve their mobility as long as possible. And, you know, we don't talk about it a lot in some continuing education settings, but really sometimes the clients just can't afford or they're unwilling to spend the money on a surgical procedure. And it's still part of our oath to make sure that we try to alleviate as much pain and suffering as possible. And these are ways that we can offer people an alternative to that expensive surgery. It may not be the, the top of the line that we would recommend, but you've got to work with your clients. You've got to work with your patients. Um, a lot of times, too, is if you start with some of these interventions and they don't have the effect that the client is expecting, it makes it easier for them to justify the decision to go ahead with surgery. And it also gives them a little bit of time to save some money so that they can afford to have the surgery. So the pre-surgical support of the joints or just alleviation of some of the discomfort um, allows them to maintain some muscle strength. And then if they do have the surgery, then they have a quicker recovery. Yeah, the non-surgical approach uh, really can be seen in so many of our um, families' uh, agenda only because a financial commitments uh, may not allow the actual surgical interventions. B, uh, the literature and experience may show us that uh, the outcome in the end is is not really different for that patient. A very good example of that would be elbow interventions, where we know we can actually remove. Uh, a medial coronoid process, um, but have very similar outcomes within the next year as if we didn't remove that, that coronoid process. Um, putting on my anesthesiologist hat, I'm, I'm confident that there's not many comorbidities that we cannot get around in terms of anesthetizing that patient. So I think the fear of anesthesia can be taken off the table, but still owners will have that as far as a surgical uh, intervention would have. Um, the outcome of that of that surgery is oftentimes a very restricted life for that patient, even if there is mobility involved. So I think many owners cannot really restrict that patient and care for it appropriately after a surgical intervention. And that's a lot of money to spend for something that is going to still require a good four to eight weeks of very careful care. So I think the interventional, the non-surgical, the supportive therapies really play a big part in, in many of our clients and our families' um, outcomes and what they would like to do for their patient. We, need, we really need to offer them options as much as we can. I love the focus that both of you have on, you know, just working with your client and what will work best for that pet owner and that pet and just kind of coming together as a team to find the best therapy plan. Yeah, I think a team approach is absolutely essential. I couldn't agree more. So when we're talking about one of these non-surgical approaches to disease processes like hip or stifle disease, what types of considerations should we keep in mind? Probably from the standpoint of supportive uh, aids and mobility aids, um, the literature has shown us that Many of these devices, especially the rigid orthotic uh, fiberglass-based devices, 
will cause much skin irritation and really do need to be fitted to the patient well. And that's a very big investment. I think owners have to understand that uh, predictable outcome. And owners also have to understand that this is not a cheaper alternative um, sometimes than in the long run than the surgery is. But um, that was really something that uh, is historical. And I think Balto and KVP has brought a, a brand new line to the market in terms of their jump supportive uh, stifle device and their uh, Balto Life, the hip support, in that these are now affordable. There is much less skin irritation. There's much more comfort to the patient. There's easier application and uh, certainly a very fast turnaround time when we think about trying to fit these patients. So I do think that the opportunity to have some of these devices without the classic evidence-based skin irritation um, and heavy cost is now on our table. So Dr. Looney, I wanna ask you a little bit more specifically about hip disease and the bimodal appearance in veterinary patients. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what that means and what can be done to help both populations? Hip disease in our veterinary patients, particularly dogs, usually appears in uh, two categories. We see a very young category of animal uh, that has much soft tissue uh, laxity as well as um, as well as an inability to go ahead and to uh, train those hips accordingly because of their attention span, et cetera. We also see an older population that has a very arthritic joint, the end stage, the bone on bone type of complications. So those two categories of hip disease we often see in our canine patients and our feline patients, we often see a combination of the two in the middle age cat having not only um, laxity, but much soft tissue, embarrassment, trigger points, strain, referred pain, et cetera. So I think uh, the treatment of both those categories, especially our younger patients really can benefit from a lot of supportive devices that allow appropriate kinesio feedback, um, a little bit of support and tension on the appropriate tissues, as well as an ability to allow the owner to lift the animal appropriately. And that's something that the, the Balto uh, life does. Um, in terms of the stifle disease, um, we don't see that much of a bimodal appearance. We, we oftentimes see an end stage uh, joint but so I think the, uh, the hip disease is quite unique in that category. And we've touched on this a little bit in some of the previous questions, but can we talk in a little more detail about supportive devices like support wraps, braces, orthotics? What kind of benefits do these devices provide to pets? What are the risks associated? And how do we talk about these with the owner? Yeah, let's talk about the last question first and how we speak about uh, this to the owner. I think it's very important to the owner that they understand the potential for skin irritation with almost any of these devices, whether the custom made uh, hardened uh, fiberglass orthotic or whether they are something similar to the Balto Jump, which is a very fashionable, easy to apply uh, open air device. We can still have skin issues. Evidence shows that in the literature. Um, I also want the owner to be aware that 
the animal is still going to have to be restrained in a different way. And I'm not talking about caging that, that patient, um, but oftentimes the exercise needs to be modified appropriately, uh, whether the patient has a supportive device or whether they have surgery. So those are the two biggest things that I really uh, try to stress to my, my patients and my owners. Um, and so we've talked a little bit about the risks involved with those uh, devices and aids. Uh, the benefits, of course, are that we get the stability in that patient, especially if we talk about something like the Balto jump. Um, another big benefit is that the patient becomes acutely aware of the uh, circumstances around that joint. And by circumstances, I mean the referred pain, the trigger points, um, the compensatory muscle mechanisms, just by the different uh, feeling the neuromuscular input that that device imparts through the skin on the fascia and the soft tissue. So we not only get stability from those devices, but we get a different neuromuscular feedback that actually is very beneficial in helping the animal heal. And the final benefit is the ability of the owner to actually help that patient in a very appropriate way. Sure. Kind of like what we talked about before, really taking this broad look at the whole picture at our patient as a whole and the relationship with the family and just kind of how it all plays together. Yeah, it's very important to to consider the family. I love that that term that they're all part of the family and make sure that when you're developing your your protocols for these patients that um, that we're considering more than just what we normally reach for. It's not just about NSAIDs anymore. There's a lot of different alternatives. There's a lot of different support that we can offer to these patients. Um, and it behooves us to spend a little bit of time thinking about what really is the best for that particular family. Yeah, I think uh, the appropriate supportive device is really a key. Um, we all know that we can sedate the patient or not sedate the patient, make a mold, have a custom-made fabricated orthotic, uh, for some of these issues, whether they be carpal, whether they be elbow, whether they be stifle, et cetera. Um, but if that device is not easy to don and it makes the family really resent uh, exercising that patient or helping them in some way, shape or form, then we may as well not even bother uh, investing in that for our patients. So we really have to look at the big picture as far as the family dynamics, who's going to be putting on the device, when it's going to be worn, what is the lifestyle of that patient uh, as we start to get these devices out. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Not really. I think we've covered a lot of a lot of important information in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I'm just very grateful to be part of the podcast. I really hope that people can see the benefit uh, in terms of some of the supportive devices and the ability of uh, of many of the companies to have made these uh, lightweight, uh, cost effective, uh, easy to don, um, much more comfortable to the animal has not really been uh, present in our profession until Balto and KVP came along. So I'm very grateful to have been part of that that movement. Wonderful. Well, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you again to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, guys. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Thank you to everyone for joining us. And a big thank you to VetraScience and KVP Orthotics for sponsoring this event. Thanks, Dr. DeLumba and Dr. Looney for your expertise. 
To learn more about KVP and Vetra Science, you can go to kvportho.com, that's k-v-p-o-r-t-h-o.com, and vetraproline.com, that's v-e-t-r-i-p-r-o-l-i-n-e.com. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. <laughs>